Hi, I'm Shelby. Um, I'll be reading from Romans 12, 1 through 2. Um, it's a short one, but it is full of good. So, um, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Man, thank you, Shelby. Uh, this passage is indeed full of goodness. I'm excited about it. Also, if you do, did hear that bell and continue to hear the bells, you don't have to change classes today uh, during our service, but I, I think they didn't turn the bells off for the weekend. So at any time, we may have to pause for the school bell. Uh, just like you heard a minute ago. Um, this morning, I'm excited about diving back into Romans. It's been a while. Uh, we had done Romans from January all the way to May, looking at chapters 1 through 11. And now we get to turn the corner with Paul. Paul is the man who wrote this letter so many years ago. Uh, he wrote it to some very early Christians in the city of Rome, a very important city in the world. But he's writing to them, telling them that their citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is far more important than their citizenship even at Rome. Amen? And that's true of us even today. If you're a Christian, the thing that defines you more than anything else, the thing that defines you more than your citizenship here on earth or more than your family connections is what God has done through you, for you through King Jesus. And so this morning we're going to take a look, uh, just kind of set the tone for the rest of the fall as we work our way through chapters 12 to, to 16 because Paul now wants to tell us that not only is the gospel true, but the gospel works. Uh, you may be here today and you, you're not sure what you believe. You're not sure if you're, you're a Christian or not or want to follow Jesus. One of the main questions that I get a lot from people is not necessarily, is Christianity true? Is there really a God who made the world? Is Jesus really God who died on the cross and rose from the dead? Here's the main question I get. Does it work? Is Christianity going to make a difference in my life? And is Christianity going to make a difference in anybody's life and in the world? And Paul wants to tell us this. Christianity is not true because it works. It's just true because it is true. It is what God has done in the world, according to Paul. But because it's true, because God really has entered into the world to work, Christianity does, in fact, work. It does, in fact, change your life. The gospel message, which is what he described in the first 11 chapters, this wonderful good news about what God does for us in Jesus cannot but change your life when you truly embrace it. Uh, in, in all the chapters, he's going to take us through many details about our lives, all the different relationships, and how those relationships are different now that we have a relationship with God through Jesus. But this week in verses 1 and 2, if you'll look at it again, Paul's focus is squarely on the heart of that life change. The heart of the change the thing that shapes the change from here on out is your relationship with God. It can start nowhere else. Now, why is that true? It's true for this reason. Think about it. Uh, everybody, I think everybody in this room, everybody in the world, really desires their life to change. Isn't that right? Uh, new life is just this, is, is a thing that whether you're a Christian or not, people are thirsting and hungering for. Uh, for example, if you've ever watched the show that Oprah Winfrey put out called Masterclass, there's also a podcast that goes along with it. I listened to it a couple times this week while I was exercising. Very fascinating. That podcast or that show is all about how the most famous people in the world, as she interviews them, how they've gone through various kinds of life change and what they did to make their life change and how that then led to their great success. And as I listened, I couldn't help but think, yeah, that's right. 
Everybody listens to that or watches that and wants, I want some kind of, you know, spark to my life. I want something to happen in my life that's going to make it go in a different direction. But where do I find it? I listened to one about Justin Timberlake and Jay-Z this week. (laughs) And and Justin Timberlake, he talked about how his life, the change came through self-discipline. And I thought, yeah, that is often what our culture says, right? Mind over matter. Work really hard. You know, force yourself, discipline yourself, do the right thing, stop doing the wrong things. He talked about how he played guitar till his fingers bled. He sang till he lost his voice. He, he danced until his feet were about to fall off. And that's how his life changed and he became successful. On the other hand, Jay-Z, also, also a musician in case you don't know. Jay-Z, he talked about how he, he dug down deep into his heart. And he found what he called his truth. He found the the feelings that were truest to himself, and he just stopped worrying about what people thought, and he just expressed his truest self. That's when things broke for him. That's when his life changed. I thought, that's it. Our culture tells you, if you're going to change, those are the only two options. You either have to work really hard and discipline yourself, behavior modification, or you have to dig down deep inside and express yourself, no matter what the haters are going to say, right? This passage, if you'll look at verse 1, tells you a completely different basis for life change, doesn't it? Not self-discipline, not self-expression, but what does he say? Present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. The Bible actually says, the gospel claims, real, true, and lasting life change happens not by either of those things, but by self-sacrifice. That's why if you're going to get life change, the only way you can get it is by first dealing with your maker. First, dealing with your creator. The only way that you can become a self-sacrificing person is by coming to know personally the self-sacrificing God of grace. The God who actually entered the world and sacrificed himself for you. That's what we're going to see this morning. If you look at your worship folder, we're going to see that in three ways. There There are three points today. First of all, I want you to see the basis of this new life that Jesus can bring you. Then I want you to see the essence of it. And then finally, I want you to see the requirement of it, the basis, the essence, and the requirement. Let's look together. Uh, First of all, the basis of the new life. If you look again at verse 1, you can see the way Paul states uh, states his appeal shows us what everything in the Christian life is based on. He says there in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. That word appeal is like a really strong, I'm encouraging you with everything within me. I'm encouraging you kind of as I'm kicking you in the backside as well. I'm I'm giving you a very strong encouragement on the basis, he says, by the mercies of God. And there it is. That's what makes Christianity so unique. That's what makes the gospel so different as a basis for life change from anything you'll get from any other place in all the world and in all of culture. This life change comes only by the mercies of God. The mercies of God. What does that mean? God's grace. The very thing that Paul has been describing in verses or in chapters 1 through 11. That the gospel is not God loves good people. And what you and I need to do is become good people, become someone good like me, and God will love you like he loves me. That's not the gospel. You know, if that's what the church is representing to the world as the gospel, we're lying to the world. Because the gospel is about how we could not do for ourselves what needed, needed to be done to change. We could not dig down deep in ourselves and express our better angels, so to speak, and become the people that God created us to be. We're too hopelessly wrecked for that. What had to happen is God himself had to enter the world. 
He had to do on our behalf what we could never do for ourselves so that he could change what we could never change for ourselves. Paul says, I'm appealing to you. I'm telling you about a whole new way of life on the basis of simply the mercies of God, of what God has done through Jesus Christ. It's not something you earn like a paycheck. It's something that's given to you like a gift, the very reason why God came into the world. There's a great story in the Old Testament that illustrates this. There was a man named Jacob. You've probably heard of him. He was the grandson of Abraham. Abraham was one of the first believers that you can read about in the Bible. But unlike his grandfather Abraham, Jacob was a little slower on the spiritual uptake, so to speak. It took him a while to really get what it was that God was trying to tell him in the good news of of the promise that God first gave to his grandfather. And so most of Jacob's life was spent on the run. He was a fugitive. He was a rebel against God. He was running away from God. But you know, Jacob had this experience that maybe some of y'all have. You're trying, or maybe you have tried in the past, to get away from God, only to realize he's coming after you. Have you ever had that experience? It's not just you chasing him, trying to find him. It's him actually chasing you. He's, he's like a hunting dog, right? Who's coming after you, trying to bay you up and corner you in. In Genesis 28, God shows up to Jacob at a time when he did not expect it. He's sleeping out in the desert. It says he has a rock for a pillow, which sounds like a terrible night's sleep. And then he has a dream. And in that dream, you know what he saw? He saw a ladder from earth to heaven and from heaven to earth. That lad- a ladder came down in his dream out of heaven right down to earth. And it said he saw angels going up and down the ladder. And he looked all the way to the top. And at the very top it says he saw the Lord. And God boomed out in his dream in a thunderous voice. And he said, Jacob, I am the God of your father Abraham. And what I promised to him, I'm promising to you personally. Jacob woke up from his dream and immediately he says, God is in this place. This is the house of God. He built a little altar. He went on about his business. That became a major milestone in his life. Now, here's the point in me saying that. Oftentimes when that story is told, what's the punchline? Normally the punchline is this. We teach children, climb Jacob's ladder. Jacob was out there. God let a ladder down and he's basically up top saying, climb up, Jacob. One rung at a time. Reach me. Do everything in your power to get to the top. Self-discipline, self-expression, that's how you get life change. But you know what? That's the total opposite of what God was trying to tell Jacob. Because when you go to the New Testament and Jesus finally shows up, he uses that story to explain his mission. He talks to a man named Nathaniel in John chapter 2. And he said, Nathaniel, believe me, I'm telling you the truth. You are about to see heaven opened. And you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on me. In other words, translation, here's what he's saying. Jacob saw God at the top of the ladder, but now God's done come down the ladder. Here I am. Jacob's ladder is not a, hey, you climb up and get to God with your efforts. Jacob's ladder was God's coming down to get you. God's coming down to rescue. Your life, the the whole new way of living that God is calling you to is based on the fact that God has come down the ladder to rescue his people. Jesus is God. When you look at Jesus, when you look at his life and what he came to do, what you see is God's heart for you, God's heart for the world that he made, God's relentless commitment to save his people even when it cost him a ton. And so Paul says back then, and he says it to us this morning, By the mercies of God, I appeal to you. Live a whole different way. 
If you're trying to do good simply to earn your way to God, well, you're not really doing good after all. You're really just trying to use God. You're trying to pay him off. You're trying to bribe him. Isn't that right? I mean, what if you had a friend who was really good to you, and one day you took him to lunch and said, hey, I just want to thank you for being my friend. You helped me. You blessed me so much. Thank you so much for being my friend. And then they said, it's no problem. I need the paycheck. And you're like, what? And then they proceed to tell you, yeah, so-and-so has been paying me for years to be your friend, spend time with you and to help you. I I need the paycheck. How would you feel? Well, the friendship would be over, I'll tell you that. Your sense of security in that person's friendship would be completely shattered, I'll tell you that. And what God is saying is this, I don't want service that's you climbing the ladder to earn something from me that's not me. I've come to give you myself. Real good works, real love comes when you know you're already so loved that you don't need anything else. And now all you can do is just simply give. And so Paul says this, by the mercies of God. There's no more powerful force in the world than the mercies of God. And so look then secondly at the next point, the essence of the new life, because this drives that point home even more. Because the kind of life that that Paul is saying we ought to live uh, in, the, the, the way that he's appealing for us to live is completely radical. It's something completely different than you and I would probably expect. He says again in verse one, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to do what? What does he say? To present your bodies, listen to this, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to him, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, Paul is saying this, I'm not calling you to simply show up at church on a Sunday, every now and then do your bit by God, you know, to do your good deeds so that you can get something in return. No, I'm saying lay your whole self down on the altar, be killed you know, die to yourself so that you can then be offered up to God for his pleasure and glory. Whoa. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Now, why does he use the word sacrifice there? That, that really is kind of the key to understanding this. You may be thinking, hold, hold on, I thought you were just saying that God came down the ladder and that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, therefore, would be the last sacrifice needed. Now, why are he, is he asking us to present ourselves as a sacrifice There's a very important reason for it. In the Old Testament, not only were there sacrifices for sin, there were those. You would bring the animal. Back then, you would bring an animal with you to to church, so to speak, and you would kill that animal as you confess your sins over it. That animal was an innocent being sacrificed in your place so that you could have a relationship with God. But right after that was done, there were other sacrifices that you could do. There was a free will or a gift sacrifice where you take a part of your crop or a part of your grain and you, you give it to God, you burn it up and let it rise to the Lord to say not, I'm paying for my sins. You're not saying I'm climbing the ladder with this sacrifice. You're saying because you've come down and, and atoned for my sins so that I can know you, I'm giving my life to you as a way of saying thanks. And then after that, you could bring yet another sacrifice, which is called a fellowship offering. And there you would not only cook the bread and kill the animal and cook it, but you, would, you wouldn't burn it completely. You would actually eat it in the presence of God. It says that men dined with God back then when they came to the temple. That's what Paul's talking about right here. Let me, put, let me tie it all together for you. Jesus died on the cross once for all to pay for your sins. If you're a believer in him, every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future, completely paid for. He climbed all the way down the ladder, and he's pulled you all the way up the ladder. You're with God forever. But now... 
the privilege that we have, the calling that we have is to offer up our thanksgiving every day and to offer up our fellowship every day to live in communion with God. The way you do that is you lay your whole life down, like any sacrifice, laid on the altar. Die to yourself. Die to your agenda. Die to life your way so that you can then be offered up freely to God. You say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like good news. I mean, you're making it kind of sound good, but that doesn't sound good. I have to die? I mean, and right there, what we see is the hitch, right? You and I can't come into this world and we live our whole lives thinking that the intention of my life is to be the sacrificer, not the sacrifice. It's to be the master and not the servant, right? I mean, we all, several years ago, watched Downton Abbey. I think all of us watched that on PBS, or at least you were forced to watch it by your wives or friends. You know there were two families or two sets of people in that show, the masters, the lords and ladies of the house. And then there was the downstairs staff. Both were very fascinating to watch about. But on the one side of life, upstairs, everything revolved around them. They got to command everybody around. They didn't have to do any hard work. Everything came pretty easily. They got their way. For the downstairs staff, they didn't have anything. I mean, everything they had was given to them, and it was somebody else's for them to, like, manage. And what you and I seem to think is that somehow Jesus came into the world. God, God himself, entered the world. And he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve He served us by dying on the cross, and we think he did that so that then we could act like Lady Crawley (laughs) and walk around our life commanding everything around, getting our way all the time, having all of our dreams fulfilled, and Jesus is just my assistant to help me do that. As I say that out loud, do you see how dumb that sounds? (laughs) If Jesus, if God became a servant, if God became a servant to serve your need and your sin, which is what the gospel says he did, then of course... The purpose of God in doing that was not to turn you and me into little kings of our own kingdoms, but to set our hearts free so that we could do what we were always meant to do, which is a life of service to God and service to our neighbor. That's what we're really made for. We thought real life comes with less commitments, less you know, effort, less of giving away myself and more of getting and taking, but Jesus says, no, it's more blessed to give than receive. <laughs> Jesus says, you want to know what real joy is? You want to know what real life is? Give yourself away for God and others. Learn to serve. I was the, Jesus, this is Jesus talking. I was the happiest person that ever lived on this earth. How was I happy? I gave myself away. And I did it for you. That's why, that's why Paul says here, not only to present your bodies, but he says, doing this is your spiritual worship. Your spiritual worship. It's real worship. Worship from the heart. One translation says this is truly the way to worship God. It makes sense. If Jesus gave himself for you, he died for you, it makes sense that you would live for him. That you would every day die to yourself so that you could be offered up to God. I mean, let's just just think for a minute. Brass tacks, what does this come down to? Number one, this is not the only thing you're called to do if you're a Christian, to come to this meeting on Sunday morning. It's not the only way to worship God. In fact, this is just a small part of it. In some ways, this is just kind of the, the place we go to all meet together and talk about and, and celebrate and long for and get God's blessing for all the ways we're really going to worship when we leave this room. Isn't that right? 
Every area of our life, it's saying, offer your body, offer everything you do on the altar so it might be given to God a sweet-smelling savior, savor, as the Bible says. As the, as the offering fire rises, God smells it and he's pleased. Every part of your life, even the parts that you think aren't very important, offer them up to God. Every part is a part that can give God pleasure and give him glory. Here's the other brass tacks. How do you test it? How do you test whether you're a living sacrifice? Number one, do you seek God's glory or do you seek your own? I mean, what, what's the, whose name do you really want to be in lights by the end of your life? Whose name do you want to be in lights next week at your job? <laughs> do you want people to think about you and talk great about you and lift you up? Or is your heart more to see God, people talk about God? And what good things God has done in this world and how that shines through in your life. Also, love. Do, do you live more for the benefit of yourself? Are you always only thinking about how every decision affects you? Or is your heart starting to think more about how your decisions benefit others or not? And then are you making decisions based on that? Are you living for the benefit of others? And then lastly, who's in charge? A living sacrifice is not in charge. They are laid down. They are put down so that they can be offered up. And so is Jesus ever allowed to tell you no? Do you ever let him tell you no? When he tells you no about something, how do you react? Are you, yes, sir, I want to be a good and faithful servant. You gave yourself for me. It's my pleasure to listen to you, even when I don't understand it. Or are you saying, well, I'm not going to do that. You can't go there. Do you avoid church? Do you avoid the Bible because you don't want to read those parts that you know are going to be convicting and are going to collide with your lifestyle? You see, if we're going to be a living sacrifice, Jesus can tell us yes and no. (laughs) And we got to respond as a servant to a master, whichever one he tells us. You see, Jesus died to make you a servant. And that, after all, all along, that was the reason why human beings were made. We were put on this earth not to build our own kingdoms. We were made for a kingdom, absolutely, but it ain't ours. (laughs) We were made for a king, but we're not the king. We were made for glory, but not our own. And you see, Jesus is returning us at the cross and the resurrection back to what we were originally made for. That's the essence of it. And then finally this morning, look third at the requirement of it. In other words, what has to happen? What is required for this life change to happen in my life? You see, not every, everybody will agree with this, I think, no matter who, what your perspective is this morning. Every, everybody would say, not everyone who says they're a Christian actually lives this living, sacrificed life. Can I get an amen on that one? <laughs> I mean, maybe you're saying amen for yourself. I know I would as well. We don't live fully like this. Why don't we? Why don't we? Uh, Paul tells us why we don't, and then he tells us how we can. In verse 2, he says, first of all, why we don't. He says, do not be conformed to this world. And right there is the reason why we don't look like living sacrifices. Even though we say we believe in Jesus, we say we believe in God and grace. We are squeezed into the mold of the world more than we're squeezed into the mold of the gospel. That's why it happens. We're squeezed into the the, the way that society has trained us to think. Everybody in the world thinks, me first, got to get mine. Uh, I've got to self-discipline. I've got to express myself, and that's the way that I'm going to achieve this thing called success. We fill our lives with all these things. And the reason why you can have a Christian here who does exactly the same thing in every part of their life, 
that someone who doesn't believe in Jesus over here does is because this Christian has not let the gospel drop from here to here. The gospel has been an idea they've talked about. It may have been something they got real excited about and clapped and cried and everything else in church, but it hasn't dropped down to dominate the life. Paul is inviting us to the domination of grace in your heart. He wants what God did for you in Jesus to be the dominant voice in everything you think, say, and do. Jesus also backs this up. He told his disciples, I meant for you to be salt in the earth. Back then, salt was not just like for flavor. It was for preservation. There was no air conditioning. You had to rub the salt in the meat so that it would keep, so that it wouldn't rot. He's saying, y'all, my people, you're supposed to be in the world like salt, keeping the world around you from rotting, preserving it. But he said, if the salt has lost its saltiness, it doesn't do any good for anybody. In other words, if you claim to be my, my people, if you claim to follow me, but your life is no different than anyone else, then you're not doing the thing for which I've put you in the world. You're not making any kind of difference. We as a church, we will make no difference on our community, in our neighborhood, and in our workplaces if our lives are exactly the same, me first. If we are saying on Sunday, Jesus, 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 but on Monday through Saturday, we're worshiping money to upgrade our lives. We're worshiping honor to make our ego feel better. We're worshiping pleasure because we haven't learned that being a servant is the way that we get real joy. We still think it comes from being served. Then we're never going to make any kind of impact. We are not going to be salt in our community. But Paul tells us here exactly how that can happen. Don't be conformed to the world. But what does he say next? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, the renewal of the mind, grace dominating my inner inner life. My thoughts, my feelings, everything being submitted over and over again to the very fact that God has come down the ladder and met me face to face. Do you really believe that this morning? Do you believe that in Jesus God came down the ladder to meet you? Do you believe that he was born as a human being so that you could have all the riches and treasures of knowing God himself in your personal life? If you really believe that, what does money look like to you? (laughs) What is honor to you? What is pleasure to you? What are all those things to you if you really believe that? If it dominated you that God, Jesus himself, died on the cross to be a perfect sacrifice So that you could have a relationship with God that will never end. What are all those other things to you? What an amazing gift he's given. If you really believe God straight up went out of a grave, conquered death, blew it wide open. And did that so that you could have the same power living in you so that you could be a servant like he was. What are all those other things going to mean to you? You see, it has to dominate you. It's like the rain falling on the ground. If you're wanting to have a good lawn, you can't have rain once a year. It ain't going to work. You can't have rain even once a month. You can't even really have it once a week. You got to have it over and over again for that, for it to flourish. We need the gospel all the time, every day, recognizing that God has come down the ladder and there he is. He has pursued me even when I tried to run away from him. There's a great song that says this, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the, which the prince of glory died, when I survey Jesus, 
Then I know that love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. That's when I know that I'm to be a living sacrifice. Laid on the altar, dying to myself, offered up to God. When I survey it. Now a surveyor, some of y'all have been surveyors, you know. You don't just go out and say, yeah, I think it's over there somewhere. <laughs> like you get out on the ground and you find exactly where the lines are, don't you? That's what we need to do. Find exactly where the lines are. Go to scripture. Call on the Holy Spirit. Pray. Ask God to show you exactly what has God done for you in Jesus. Exactly who am I in Christ? Show me. Fill me with that in my heart so that it would be more important to me than all the other things that, that my heart and that the world around me tells me ought to be important to me. Let me survey it and then I'll know. I'll leave you with this story. Um, there's a man named Eric Little several, uh, you know, a long time ago, back in World War II. You, you may know him from the movie Chariots of Fire. He was the runner who won the gold medals for England or Britain. Well, little known, after he won the gold medals, he went as a missionary to China. And during the war, he ended up being imprisoned in a labor camp, like a lot of other missionaries and foreigners at that time. He ended up dying there, actually. Another man in the same camp, who was not a believer and struggled through but survived, afterward wrote a book about his experience. And, and he was depressed because as he lived through that experience, it was hard. They were being starved. They were being abused. They were being mistreated. He said it seemed to always bring the worst out of everybody. It brought the worst out of everybody. I mean, everybody got, became a worse person because they were under so much stress. He said even the most religious people in the camp, even the missionaries, became worse. In fact, sometimes they were worse than anyone else. They became more nasty and ugly under great pressure. And it depressed him. He, he thought, does Christianity even work? Does religion even work? And then he met Eric Little in the camp. And Eric Little was different. He said, it's not so often, he writes later, not so often that you get to meet a real saint. But in Eric Little, I met that saint. He says, everybody else was selfish, but Eric was overflowing with life. Everybody else was trying to look out for number one, stealing and throwing everybody under the bus. He was pouring himself out. He was playing games with the kids. He was teaching people. He was, he was giving of himself. He began to ask why and to move closer to Eric. And later he writes why that was possible. He says, for Eric, it was not just religion, this Jesus thing. It was not just something for Sunday morning or something for Bible reading time or something to make myself look good. It was real, he says. He had really met God and his grace. He was a man who really saw God at the bottom of the ladder. And what happened is he so surrendered himself that he no longer had self-interest. He no longer had self-concern. He was there simply to be a servant. That's how it happens. If you and I survey Christ, if you and I learn to be renewed in our mind by the, the good news of the gospel, if it drops from the head to the heart, we'll be a people not only ready for something like a labor camp, something extreme, we'll be ready for Monday morning, tomorrow, here in Mulberry and the surrounding area at your job. You'll be the kind of person who can be salt in the earth. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your grace today. Lord, there is so much in these verses that are so encouraging and challenging, God. I know personally I've been so challenged by it. I pray for those here, my friends, who also just feel the challenge of this passage. I pray that we would remember it's in view of the mercies of God that we offer ourselves up. 
So God, as we come to the, the table today, and not only get to hear the gospel, but we get to see it, we get to taste it, we get to touch it here in communion, I pray that you would encourage our hearts, renew our minds, so that we can offer ourselves up body and soul. I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.